bananas and some strawberries and a cup of coffee. Yeah, all kicking off. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Peter Geegan, author of Democracy for Sale and writer at Open Democracy, was our guest on today's show. I've been trying to get to sit down with Peter and, and have a chat about dark money and politics for, for quite a while. So after a short delay in the release of his book due to COVID-19, it was a pleasure to finally get to sit down with him and discuss his brand new book, Democracy for Sale. It explores many of the same areas that I cover in my own book, albeit from a slightly different angle. It covers the influence of dark money and the soft power of think tanks and lobby groups in British politics, as well as the failures of our ageing electoral laws and their inadequacy in a rapidly changing world of political campaigning. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So here's Peter Geegan. So, Peter, it's Geegan, right? That's how you pronounce it. Yes. Okay. Because I was, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 it's not an easy one, but yeah, Geegan. Geegan, okay. So, Peter, uh, what was the most challenging part about writing this book for you? Well, this book is kind of a product of more than three years of, of work and research and stories. I mean, I've probably written hundreds of stories that this book kind of draws on over that period. And I think probably the hardest point when it comes to writing a book like this is to sit down and figure out, well, how to tell the story. Because when you're a news journalist and you're working you know, like on things like the kind of stories that are in this book about the DUP, about Paul Lee, about Aaron Banks, there's always a natural next bit. Every piece of information is a new story. And that, that justifies writing the next story. And you're constantly trying to push the story on for further and further. When it comes to writing a book, that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to tell a story. You're trying to tell a narrative that kind of makes sense, that has a kind of narrative coherence. And in some ways, the hardest bit I found was, was sitting down and figuring out how to write this book. It was it was written very quickly, actually. I started in, I think, maybe this end of July 2019 and, and finished it by, I think I actually finished it officially on New Year's Day. So it was written in about four, five or six months. And I was trying to kind of figure out, well, how to tell the stories I wanted to tell, how to develop almost a narrative arc in a way that brings the reader on a journey that tells the reader what these stories actually mean within a bigger context. And I, that was one of the kind of goals of this book. Like A lot of people have heard about Cambridge Analytica. A lot of people have heard about these kind of think tanks, bits and pieces in the news. I wanted to try and put all that into context with it, along, and also alongside things that were happening elsewhere. So for this book, Instead of like trying to do a lot of investigations, because I've done a lot of investigations already, I actually did a lot of interviews. So I wanted to talk to people who maybe I hadn't talked to when I was before I'd written the book, or maybe I had but hadn't asked them about specific events, because I wanted to put what was happening within context. So, like I spoke to a lot of Conservative MPs, Labour MPs, even spoke to Steve Bannon, uh, Trump, the former Trump campaign manager. I went to meet the people like regulators. I went to the Electoral Commission. I had off-record meetings with people in government, you know, I wanted to try and flesh it out to try and build a larger understanding of the world within which like kind of money, unaccountable money, lobbying data kind of takes place and happens. So 
that was really interesting for me, actually. There was a lot of, I learned a lot, even in the writing of this book. But I think that's the, that, for me, was the most difficult bit, was figuring out how to structure it and how to put it all together into a coherent whole. Well, you definitely do like a really great job of, of finding a way to explain these kind of like supranational power structures that exist um, in a way that helps you understand just sort of how much they permeate the, the political culture of, of Britain and, and of America as well, even even more so. Um, like, how did you go about trying to construct that idea of 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 explaining how, how much soft power there actually is there and, and how that influences things. And like, how much influence do you really think that has in, in how policy and decisions get made in, in government? Well, kind of in terms of like how I went about doing it, practically kind of the first bit of that question, you know, when it comes to writing, you know, I'm going to be giving away a few tricks to trade. This is the third book I've written, and all nonfiction. And I often will have a book that I'm using as a bit of a lodestar for, you know, you're not copying a book, but you're kind of thinking about how does somebody else do it from a book that kind of you feel like your book is going to sit alongside. And for me, Jane Meyer's book, Dark Money, was really a very important book I read, you know, a couple of years before for kind of understanding, not only for understanding the role of dark money in American politics, but also how to tell stories in a compelling way. Because I think she tells such a compelling story about the Koch brothers who are these well, one of them is dead now, died last year, um, kind of plutocratic American oil billionaires who spent a fortune over the last 40 years, 50 years on American politics and have pushed very specific agendas around climate change, denialism and around kind of libertarian politics. And, and I was really kind of, that was something I found really compelling because what she was able to do in that book was to convince you that these people mattered by the sheer kind of weight of evidence around them. Rather than just telling you these guys are important, she showed you that. And I was trying to do that, I think, with this book too, is rather than being didactic and saying, you know, I try not to step in myself too often and be a commentator. Far more, I try to just lay out a lot of evidence so the reader can say, well, actually, do you, does the reader think this is a compelling case? And and that's the kind of issue of soft power. And it's the reason I ended up focusing in the book quite a lot on the Brexit process was because not because I thought that this was the only thing that Brexit had been bought and, you know, was a Russian influence campaign or anything else. And I kind of laid that out in the book about my concerns about going too far down that kind of way of thinking about, about like our politics now. But the reason is I think I focus so much on it was because I think it's a really interesting example of that kind of soft power having a huge effect. You know, I looked at these think tanks kind of basically kind of nominal research institutes. Now, the idea is really a very kind of American idea where you get what look like independent bodies, you give them money. In this instance, the kind of think tanks are often funded by anonymous corporate donors. They produce research that then goes out into the public domain, is seen as impartial, is seen as something that kind of isn't part of party politics, but actually often is very partial and is very, very deeply political and serves political ends, but does so in a way that's very hard for ordinary people to trace. And I really looked at Brexit and some of the things that are happening around Brexit and kind of was saying, well, I think that there's a compelling case to be made that this is that kind of soft power in action. I focus in particular on one think tank, an organization called the Institute of Economic Affairs, the IEA, which sounds really grand, has a nice office not far from Westminster, you know, sounds really impartial, Institute of Economic Affairs, sounds really like kind of dusty and you can imagine people stroking their beards and reaching August, uh, August um, conclusions based on extensive agreement on the evidence. 
that's not what happens with the IEA. The IEA is essentially a lobbying outfit in all but name. Um, it does. It's a registered charity. Um, it doesn't declare its donors, but we know in the past it's had money from the tobacco industry, the oil industry, the gambling industry, lots of other similar industries. And what I was really interested in, and it came from my own reporting, was I started to see the IEA all over the place when I was reporting on Brexit in the kind of 2017, 18, 19. IEA papers were been cited by Jacob Rees-Mogg and other Brexiteers, people involved with the European Research Group, this small group of kind of hardline pro-Brexit Tories, were constantly quoting the IEA. And they were seen as this, you know, kind of offering this alternative, what they call Plan A+. Plus. This alternative Brexit on WHO terms. And I felt like that had a real impact. And I think it did. I spoke to I spoke to people who did work in government at that time. It had an impact in terms of shifting the overt and window, what's acceptable in politics. It, it had on this is what I why I spent so long focusing on it. I, I think it had a real kind of discernible kind of impact on where Britain ended up. So what you ended up was if post the 2016 referendum. The people who got really, really engaged really quickly, who hit the ground running, were these think tanks, were the kind of people involved in places like the European Research Group. And they very quickly set the terms of what Brexit meant to them and were very, very effective in terms of pulling the British government away. And eventually, I think they led to the, the downfall of Theresa May and to the politics we have now, uh, the Conservative government and, and the future, whatever the future relationship is with the European Union. I think it's fair to say that this whole period has changed British politics in really profound ways. And I think that's the kind of soft power that I think is really, really easy to kind of underestimate. Somebody I know had said, like, you're totally overestimating the IEA. These guys are a bunch. They don't know what they're doing. Like, they're just really media people because actually most of what they do is media. They're constantly in the media. Um, actually, in the IEA themselves estimated one year that they made 60, they had £66 million worth of media coverage and their turnover was £2 million. So that's really what they do. But I think I actually don't agree with that. I think it's, it's very easy to underestimate how effective this can be. And actually, Milton Friedman, the uh, famous neoliberal economist, actually said of the IEA back in the 70s that if it wasn't for the IEA, there wouldn't have been Margaret Thatcher. And I would make a similar claim in terms of these organizations, in terms of where Brexit, how our politics has shifted, that these organizations had a real discernible impact on where politics has got to. We wouldn't be talking about things like free ports, which is setting up small mini tax havens and ports around Britain without these organizations. And it just shows exactly how an idea like a free port, which came from a lobbying organization about two years ago, fed into the IEA, who produced policy papers on it, fed into the backbench of the Conservative Party. And on the day Britain left the European Union officially, on the 31st of January 2020, the Department for International Trade, the kind of Brexit trade department, was tweeting about now we have a chance to set up our free port. So I think it's it's actually quite easy to see in certain areas where this kind of lobbying and influence has had a discernible effect on policy. Yeah, the, one, of, one of the things I really enjoyed um, in your book, I say enjoyed, it's quite depressing at the same time, but um, <laughs> was how you, you were able to, to track the growth of, of ideas. Um, it's something that, that, that Owen Jones actually does quite well in, in the establishment. In, in laying out the, the foundations of a lot of these um, think tanks that, that you reference and then sort of go into more detail on than, than he does in the establishment. Obviously, his is a slightly more all-encompassing book. Yours is more focused on um, these sorts of, of ideas. But how, how much more influence do you think they have in the modern day 
because I, I was trying to to get a, a grasp on. So you mentioned that in the nineties and early two thousands that these groups were kind of in the wilderness as such. That was um, you know majority like pro interventionist ish pro like liberal ideas new labor were, were in charge and that the these sort of fringe ideas that, that have driven brexit were very much fringe ideas at that time um, and yeah i was basically curious as to how much influence you think that perhaps that they had back then that we weren't able to see just because it, you know now we're flooded with so much more information and so much more like like government has both become more secret and more transparent at the same time, just because the different types of, of information that we're able to get a hold of, mm. like like people not be, like we can see archive tweets that people have said to track what they. Whereas I, I can't imagine anyone was really like watching the exact things that people were saying in the Commons or asking for minutes or from meetings from twenty thirty years ago when perhaps they didn't even know the meetings were going on. Something you raised um, in the book was that. A lot of the meetings between um, Sankar, uh, Shankar Singham and I cannot remember who it was. Uh, I think it might have been Dominic Rab. Steve Baker, other, probably. Steve, Steve Baker. Steve Baker. Baker. That's exactly who it was. Um, he that that these meetings just went unnoticed because they were, were registered as like personal meetings or or that like I think in one um, one example that they were being listed as Mark Littlewood, the director of IEA and staff. You had no idea who and staff meant. Um, so, yeah, how, how much more influence do you think these groups have, or do you think it's just a case that we can see more now? I think it's when I started writing this book, actually, one of the books that kind of inspired me to write it in some ways was Mick Kenny and Nick Pierce's book, Shadow, uh, Shadows of Empire, which came out not long after Brexit referendum policy press. Um, Nick, uh, Mick is at Cambridge, and I think Nick, Nick, Pierce used to be the head of the IPPR, the Institute for Public Policy Research, and is now, I think, at Bath. And what they were doing in this book, it's, it's quite an academic treatise, it's, and it's quite a short book too, but it kind of charts the rise of the idea of the Anglosphere. This, and it's a book, an idea that does resonate in my book quite a lot, this idea of this kind of like, that Britain should leave its relationship with the European Union, and actually its natural relationship it is with other English-speaking countries around the world, and particularly with America. And what Nick um, and Mick, Nick and Mick, uh, do quite well in the book is kind of chart that uh, that history of the idea way back into kind of um, back to Edward Chamberlain and back into the kind of the the whole imperial tariff system and, and those debates of the eighteen of the the nineteenth and early twentieth century. But I found in that book as well some really interesting threads that I was trying to pull on a lot more in my book, which is the kind of meetings that started happening around the turn of the 20th century into the 21st century. So what happened was there was conferences in Washington and London in which people like Margaret Thatcher, people like Francis Fukuyama, Liam Fox, Conrad Black, the editor of, uh, the, the owner of the Telegraph newspaper group, Rupert Murdoch and others were all involved with and. I kind of try to kind of narrate that that idea and what it's kind of powered then, because as you say, to outsiders, it looked like this was a totally dead thing. Like they were talking about something that just wasn't happening. Um, Britain was very close to the European Union. Tony Blair was in power. But at the same time, I think it's it's already discernible that this was having an influence. I, I, if you watch that recent documentary series that was on BBC about the Murdochs, during that, the claim is made uh, by actually by Nigel Farage. So how much, how true, 
I would take it, but it always takes something that Nigel Farage has said has happened with a pinch of salt. He it's says the Rupert, yeah, it's a generous pinch. <laughs> uh, that Rupert Murdoch basically came to a deal with Tony Blair that, that he wouldn't back, he would back a referendum on if there was going to be on the euro if Britain was to try and join the European Union. And that kind of put the idea of a referendum on the table, which is Farage's argument. But I think it is fair to say that subcutaneously behind the scenes, this was having um, an impact. These ideas were kind of percolating. They weren't percolating, you know, necessarily in the in the politics of the day, but they actually were percolating in places like the columns of Boris Johnson, the Spectator, which was a, a the Spectator under Boris Johnson was a real vehicle for this kind of thinking, and his columns subsequently in the Daily Telegraph, which okay, back in the fifteen years ago they just looked like newspaper columns, but by the time you get to twenty sixteen, Boris Johnson was a significant, significant player in British politics, and obviously is now the Prime Minister. So. These are not inconsequential kind of intellectual uh, linkages. I guess my background before becoming a journalist, I actually did a PhD in social science and geography. So I've always been interested in the history of ideas and how ideas travel. And I think ideas are very powerful things. I think often as journalists, we can tend not to think about and talk about ideas and as ideas as motivating factors for action. And I was trying to, in this book, look at this idea of the Anglosphere as something that actually had motivated a very small number of people. You know, I don't think everybody who voted for Brexit by any stretch of the imagination was thinking or talking, talking about the Anglosphere. But on the right of the Conservative Party and on the right of British politics, and in these sort of think tanks, true people like Liam Fox, I talk a lot about the Atlantic Bridge story in the book. You know, and these were people that were really motivated by this. And I do think that had a significant impact on both the very move, the very kind of Brexit itself, the vote for Brexit. but far more so almost in the aftermath, because something, anything that blocked the Anglosphere becoming a thing. So that was why it was so difficult. To, the Northern Irish border became such an issue, because if there was too much integration with the European Union, and we couldn't do this free trade deal with, with America. We couldn't have this new relationship with you know New Zealand and Australia, although they're very far away. But the Anglosphere did become this lodestar, or, or you could do it away to look at it as it became a noose around the neck of the Prime Minister, because, because it had become such a powerful idea it, it was something that couldn't be just jettisoned and i think you could argue that's still where we're at um, it, remarkably more than four years on from the brexit vote the power of this idea of a kind of a realignment and a realignment of britain's role in the world is so kind of it's still so strong that the prime minister and people around him are incapable of, of doing things that would limit the ability to do that, even if it doesn't have a huge economic rationale behind it, it doesn't. Even by the own the government's own statistics suggest a free trade deal with Britain, with America would, I think, change GDP by about zero point one percent. It's even far lower even than that for Australia and New Zealand. They, they are minuscule, even at the best case scenarios. These are minuscule kind of changes to trade, but they're bound up. They're not just about trade. Ironically, the people who are espousing them talk about trade, but they're actually bound up with much bigger ideas about what Britain is and where Britain's place is in the world. I mean, when I was reading the the part about the, the Anglosphere and your, your history of it, um, something sort of really like started to dawn on me that it was, a, it's, it's a really great um, example of how many of the, the, the ideas um, that get handed down to us or many of the movements that get given to us as, as grassroots movements mm. as such are, are, are just kind of being handed down to us from from on high as such um you know we're being bequeathed them by the gods of politics 
Let, is there is there any way for us to stop that 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 like just endless march of 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 the ideas of politics being being continuously hijacked by by those with 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 money and, and influence? Like, do well, we have that, do we have a chance? This is a great, I'm very interested in astroturfing, and I think I, this is what you're talking about astroturfing, which basically yeah, yeah. means it looks it's artificial, but it looks like grassroots. And we see, you know, I, I was recently really struck by this defund the BBC campaign on Twitter, for example. Supposedly started up by one like nineteen-year-old, twenty-year-old in Glasgow University, which is I can actually see from my window here. A conservative student in Glasgow University, which I can tell you is also quite a, a rare beast, who set up this account in his bedroom and within twenty-four hours has seventy thousand followers and is in the Sun repeatedly and the Express. And you're, and then lo and behold, the campaign—you know—it's it's registered then as a, a company's house owned by a campaigner who's involved with lots of other of these groups that I, the kind of groups that I narrate in my book. And you can, they just peripherates out from it. This is happening time and again now in British politics. Campaigns that are emerged are said to be kind of a grassroots action, get lots of media coverage. It's so easy to get coverage of this stuff. Like if the playbook is, really my book is narrating a playbook and the playbook is an American playbook. You know, you just, you set these groups up, you get media attention on them. They look like a real thing. They get they will then gain some organic traction because of that. But at the root is actually, if it doesn't even need a huge amount of money, you just need to know how to manipulate the media properly. And that's why I think Matthew Elliott was so interesting as the leader of the kind of head of the Vote Leave campaign because he set up the Taxpayers Alliance. And he had gone, Elliott was a kind of young libertarian, studied at the London School of Economics, went to America to work for Grover Norquest, who... If, if some listeners might remember, as a Republican, basically a Republican strategist, for whom he wanted to uh, famously wanted to, uh, to 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 make the state so small that you could drown it in the bath. And the idea was really, you know, the idea was it sounds great, Taxpayers Alliance. Uh, it doesn't seem to have any members. The, you know, there's no actual taxpayers in this alliance. It pumps out endless kind of what is effectively anti-state uh, state research. It's been really telling actually recently. The Taxpayers Alliance. Because I still, for my sins, read their weekly newsletters and get their emails. It's still fulminating about like the amount of money spent on photocopying in local councils, but hasn't said a word about the amount of money given to private contractors, which is what I've been spending the last six months doing as part of Britain's COVID response. So, you know, former taxpayer payer, uh, alliance employees like James Frame, uh, Dominic Cummings' old mate, we're get, have gotten £840,000 contracts without a tender to run focus groups. And the Taxpayers' Alliance has nothing to say about that. Um, but I digress. Well, really what I'm trying to say here is that this is a playbook. So these organisations know how to emerge. They know how to, uh, how to kind of get media traction, to make it look like there's actually something going on when there really isn't much. And you're asking something to be done about this. I almost, I do really worry about this because if you look at the 2019 general election, which I do look at a bit in my book, what's interesting, I talk a bit about the social media campaigns and spending on that. Um, like it's easy to think just about social media and social media campaigning in terms of party politics. And there's a conversation going on in Britain now about putting, finally putting imprints on adverts, political ads. That's all well and good, but actually the real, I would argue that the real work is done by kind of what are called third, third party campaigners, you know, kind of these kind of groups masquerading as grassroots groups. And in the run up to the 2019 general election, there was a plethora of these groups pushing conservative, mainly conservative, some Labour, almost overwhelmingly conservative lines, spending hundreds of thousands of pounds, groups with names like Capitalist Worker, 
you know, help to rent, help to buy. They were spending, each of these groups was spending 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, even 100,000 pounds in ads. They were declaring nothing to the Electoral Commission. So that means that they were, uh, they, they were supposedly getting all of their funding less than 7,500 pounds, even though they'd done no fundraising that you could see discernibly. So they, like, somebody was giving a website called Capitalist Worker, like, you know, just under 7,500 pounds, multiple people running ads. It, it, it's quite hard to see how that would happen. But most interestingly, you'd imagine if you are a group, you're a campaign group, you've won the election. What would you do on election day, having won the election? You've got all these supporters. You've raised all this money. You've made all these ads. Wouldn't you take this campaign on to where you wanted to go? No, every single one of these campaigns disappeared. They have not posted a thing since the end, since the general election ended. So that's hundreds of thousands of pounds just sensibly spent by grassroots, you know, original grassroots campaigners that's just disappeared. And I think that shows the influence, I think. And I, 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 that's why I think social media has made it even more powerful. Because whereas even the likes of Taxpayers Alliance, you can see who they are. They have to they have a physical address. Online, you don't, you know, it's a free-for-all. And you can just, like, I keep a close eye on this world. These kind of pro-Brexit think tanks, they just pop up. They're like mushrooms. I've even discovered that some of them are squatting on their old sites of other similar ones. But, like, I noticed that Global Vision, which is Shankar Singham's new one, is actually squatting on the old... Uh, open Europe website. This, it's the what? exact same website. Really? Yeah, I haven't written about it because so I never know what to do with it. There's actually, if you site search the Global Vision website, which is what I often do as a journalist, I like to go back over the site, you can actually see it being constructed on, you know, if you do, if you use the Wayback Machine for, for listeners at home, go to Global Vision website, which is run by a lobbyist called Shankar Singham. And if you go to use the Wayback Machine, you'll actually discover it's the old Open Europe site. And lots of Open Europe content is actually just on the site, but just hidden. Wow. Okay. That's, I got to check that out. That is fucking hilarious. Um, <laughs> like there's definitely some sort of fun metaphor to be found in there about, about squatting. Um, <laughs> but, um, like one of the things and like you mentioned actually in your book as well was the, you kind of touched on it there. There's the amount of money being spent in the 2019 general election and the, the, the just outrageous amount of disinformation that was going out. I think, hang on, there's, there's, there's a part where there's like a, a paragraph that you quote at the start. I think it's the last chapter. Yes, I've got your book here in front of me. <laughs> Good, I've got it here too. I've always have it in front of me just in case when I do something like this, in case I forget what's in it. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the issues I'm having going back. Like, I have to now go back and reread my own book before, like, preparing all the advertising and promotional material for it. It's like, what did I say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's been a, a few moments where I've been like, oh, you really put it like that? And yeah, I, <laughs> I know. That's the problem once it's in print. Yeah, you see all the mistakes then. That's the, the best part. But what was it? Oh, yeah, the, it says the Conservatives were promoting... Um, a website pretending to deliver manifesto. Partisans had brought up countless dark ads on Facebook. A few days earlier, the Tories had shamelessly rebranded their Twitter account as a fact-checking site during a debate. Ten days later, senior party advisors spread the rumour that an aide had been... And it, you just give this list of... And I remember being in that time and being like, oh my word. Like, they have just every every rule or like sort of boundary that you wouldn't cross because that was just wrong in the past seemed to have just been like all of the lines had been like whitewashed over and painted over. You just, there was no line anymore. <laughs> Essentially is, is kind of how it felt. Um, and there was, you said there's 34 million pound raised by the conservative party in the last election. That is staggering. 
That is five times as much as like the maximum spending limit in the Brexit referendum. And that was by far like the biggest mm-hmm. um, spend up to then. So even though you, you rightly know that Britain's a bit cheaper to buy than America, um, those numbers are, st- uh, you know, they're, they're really going up a lot faster than, than, you, than I, don't know, I guess people maybe would have realized. But do you see any way of, of like getting past this, the, this massive spend online? Like some, for me, it's just, we have to ban all political advertising online until we figure out how to regulate it. Um, and, and there's definitely a feeling of, of that people are getting from this, um, you know, the, the grassroots and the astroturf and that people, uh, people are looking for other things in which to like, like real movements that often end up being more extreme in, in, in a way than the, the sort of faked movements. Like you get people like Extinction Rebellion, or I spoke to someone from the Connolly Youth Movement a while ago, and they're all like trying to figure out this way to basically bring people back into politics um, and, and sort of discount that, that, that influence of, of, of finance and, and huge like um, corporations and think tanks just sort of pushing their ideas uh, through, through social media. Like, do you, do you see a way beyond like banning political advertising to give people a bit more sort of level ground? <laughs> well, I try in the book, I try as much as I can to be like, you know, I, I will caveat my hopefulness here with it does require politicians to do something. So that's, you know, so take all of this with another Nigel Farage um, size pinch of salt. There's stuff you can do like, um, you know, because we, I think, too often look at America as a kind of comparator for our politics. And I think that's a very post-internet thing. I think the internet has, has almost produced this kind of flattening effect and meant a lot of places now look at themselves vis-a-vis America. I think, like, for example, the Black Lives Matter protest was an interesting example of that. You know, the history of race and racism in Britain is actually very different. And in lots of other countries to America, America's is almost quite a, you know, it's not unique, but it's very different to a continental experience. Um, but things get flattened and constantly seen just vis-a-vis American politics. And I think it's the same when it comes to things like money and influence. And you're right, there's a lot less money that buys influence in British politics. But I almost, when I started looking at this work, I thought that means that Britain in some ways is cleaner than America. I almost now think it's the opposite because in America it's actually very overt the, the buying of uh, the buying of politics. Now, if you look at the 2018 midterm elections, about six billion dollars was spent in that campaign. In Britain, fifty thousand pounds would get you um, uh, become a member for a year of the Conservative Leaders Group, which means you get to have you know dinner and drinks with the Prime Minister and Cabinet Ministers at least four times a year, off the record, no minutes kept. No lists provided of who attends. That's incredible access. You wouldn't. You'd have to spend, you know, possibly a thousand times that to get that kind of access in America, which I think makes Britain even more susceptible to influence. Actually, because it's cheaper to buy influence. So that's why you see people like we've got Russian donors have become a big thing in Britain recently. Talk about Russian donors, conservatives. It's easy to buy access. These guys can just give fifty, hundred grand. You can. You know, as Lubov Chernurkin, whose husband was a finance deputy finance minister under Vladimir Putin, she, you know, gave 90,000 pounds to play tennis with Boris Johnson, and I've done the same with David Cameron before. So, you know, this is cheap. This is not this. It's quite tawdry and cheap. So, what can we do about it? Well, we could limit the size of political donations, which is not a radical idea. Almost everywhere does it. France is about seven thousand five hundred euros the maximum political donation. In the book, I suggest ten thousand pounds in Britain. Why not? That's a 
fair amount. You know, it's, it's a significant chunk of money. That would force parties, uh, you're completely right that you know, Conservatives raise huge amounts of money, it would force parties though, not to just raise money from rich people. So if you look at the Sunday Times rich list for this year, the top 50 British donors, almost every, all but a couple, handful are Conservative donors. They've given more money than ever before. They've given you know, tens and tens of millions for the general election. So lots, almost all that 34 million came from super rich donors, almost all going to the Conservative Party. So the Conservative Party more than ever really is dependent on super wealthy donors. So if we cap donations, that would force um, parties to look further afield for political, for political finance. You could have some role for the state in this. I know people don't like the idea of state, the state funding political parties, but the state could do things like match funds, small donations. So if you donations under, say, £500, the state could match fund them. You could make the membership of political parties tax deductible. So there's things you could do that are practical that I think would start to take some of the money out of politics. You could be, like, our lobbying register in Britain is a joke. We'd actually be better off with no lobbying register, as I point <laughs> in the book. Because at least if there's no register, it will be a thing we talked about. We go, we have to have a lobbying register. But because we have a lobbying register that's so crap, it's actually worse because... I don't even use it. I, I, I can't remember the last time I actually even looked at lobbying because it's not even worth looking. It, it's so easy. You know, it's, it's why would you even bother? So there's things like that we could do. I, I do agree. Though, I think the internet is the place where I think our politics is being pushed more and more. And in the book, you know, I, I do focus on money a lot in politics and I focus on think tanks. But I ended up interviewing people who run hyperpartisan websites to try and understand a bit about how the communications revolution has changed our politics too. How that has, you know, it's it's pushed far more like kind of, we can all see it, emotive content, anger-filled content. It's pushed our politics, I do think, in far more binary ways. And it's, it's made our, not just our politics, and politics in many states look more American in that respect. That kind of bifurcation of American politics that we saw, particularly from the kind of 80s and 90s on, is now becoming a facet of lots of other places. And I think the communications revolution, the internet, is part of that. And our, and our complete reluctance to try and engage with some sort of regulation, I do agree. I think, you know, these companies, in the grand scheme of things, the, these are monopoly companies, Facebook, Google, Amazon. These are monopoly companies in a very, very young industry. It's very much like the oil barons and the railroad barons of the, of the Gilded Age in America. And what happened then was the antitrust laws came and broke them up. And I think we're getting towards that stage here. The, the, the amount of say that what Facebook decides to do or not do on its platform has is so massive. So, for example, Facebook's decision to try and push people into close, into groups, the idea was to build communities. We now know that's become an incredible hotbed for disinformation and conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm sure you do. I've got more than one person on my Facebook feed, whenever I, I occasionally open the site, who's now a completely COVID anti-vax conspiracy theorist. And that's all from these closed groups, you know, 5G is going to kill us all. Mm. And that's, you know, that's what's incredible. This is what sounds like a technical change that happens in a Silicon Valley company. I think they didn't, Taste didn't create the, the COVID conspiracies, but they created the environment in which they could happen. And we also, our governments did too, by actually never thinking about how do we regulate the flow of information in this way? So I think there's a huge, it's not like there's an easy thing to do with it, but I think that to me is the most challenging aspect of it. But there's things we could do right now that wouldn't be that difficult that would at least start to address some of the problems. Yeah. I mean, I don't go often to my Facebook feed for my conspiracy news. Um, Reddit's conspiracy subreddit is, is, is far better. 
Okay. <laughs> at least have links and, and stuff. It's, it's <laughs> you know, some evidence or people at least asking for evidence. <laughs> um, the the idea that something in in social media could could push us that way, like I I, I think that um, I read Naomi Naomi Klein's book No Logo um, earlier this year, and it really kind of made me think that perhaps the pushing to the extremes that, that the social media algorithms sort of tend to do, like the social media does push us like more and more to the extreme. So you start reading or watching some videos on YouTube about jogging, eventually you'll end up with with like ultra marathon videos and just that and the entire thing is pushing us more and more extreme mm-hmm. and honestly i think that's kind of like a logical conclusion of the marketing techniques that pe- that, that um, some big corporations um especially in america some clothing companies adopted in the in the 90s was basically the idea that instead of selling to the mainstream to the most like generic thing you have to sell to the extreme mm-hmm. and everything else will come with it um so I definitely think that's that's kind of the, the, the yeah. conclusion of what what we're getting to. Um, what do you think of of um, Andrew Yang's idea of democracy dollars? You know, where where just a, a political party or a candidate is given like just yeah money to spend on a certain amount of um, sort of you could say online advertising, radio advertising, TV advertising, just in order to ensure that all money is taken from or all corporate or public. Like personal donations are taken from 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 politics. I would like to take this opportunity. I think it's a very interesting idea, and I'd like to take the opportunity to say uh, to, to kind of say, to talk a little bit actually about when I was writing this book. Because when I was writing this book, I was um, lucky enough to go and live with a friend of mine for a while in London, Paul Evans, who used to run Slugger Tool uh, in in Northern Ireland as well. And Paul had before even Andrew Yang had been writing about this. Paul wrote uh, a really interesting little book called "Save Democracy, Abolish Voting," um, which is really proposing something similar. He, he Paul is a fantastic thinker on these issues, and we used to have many. We'd have a drink of whiskey of an evening after I'd been writing and discuss a lot of this stuff. And I, I thank Paul a lot in the book, and I, I do actually mention some of his ideas in there. And what Paul's argument is, is that, you know, politics is, is a microeconomy is what he's saying. And what's happening is there's small amounts of money going in and that amount of money is very, is captured. And that basically, essentially, that means that because it's a microeconomy and citizens aren't part of that microeconomy, it's that little Westminster bubble involves things like think tanks, newspapers, politicians, and this vast uh, swathe of citizenship are outside of that and have no way of actually buying access into that microeconomy. And it's very similar to, to Andrew Yang's idea. Paul's idea is, well, rather than try and take the money out of politics, maybe we should democratize the money in politics. And in the same way as Andrew Yang does, he suggests that it should be democracy dollars. We can almost have, you know, we can all have a say, basically. And, and we could, you know, it's, 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 it's a Burkean in many respects. In many ways, it's a Swiftian, uh, it's the Swiftian kind of uh, intentional provocation which you know abolish voting no more voting and instead you, you you use your democracy dollars to buy access to the things that you want to kind of put forward the ideas that you're interested in and i think it's 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 a really interesting provocation that in that context because i think it is suggesting some of these things about like well how could we broaden the participation in this system if the system's not going to go away i think it's fair to say it won't i think it's it's hard to imagine that you can you can legislate out of existence things like think tanks and lobbying. But is there a way in which citizens can actually have a far greater say? So it's not just those who are close to power, those who can go into Port Cullis House in Westminster and have a conversation over a cup of coffee with an MP who can then start to get some leverage. 
maybe there's is there ways in which all of us can have a much greater say. And I think that's really interesting. I think you know one of the kind of simple uh, idea which I've mentioned before is like making membership of political parties tax deductible. Like there's ways in which we can do these things. I and mean, democracy dollars, right? I think, it is a fascinating idea and could be could be trialed in in a British context. So because I think anything that is able to bring people more into the political process, I think can only be a good thing. I think the problem at the moment is, it's one of the reasons I think the Citizens' Assembly idea has taken off in lots of other places on the back of the experience in Ireland with the referendum, is that it seems to offer a way potentially to engage citizens. Because what we're seeing is as people feel further and further away from democracy, further and further away from politics, it's easier and easier, I think, to use a playbook that I outline in my book to uh, to basically kind of almost, as my colleague Adam Ramsey at Open Democracy wrote after the 2019 general election, almost your pitches make politics go away. And I think that's what Boris Johnson almost won on in 2019. The conservative message was, was get Brexit done, which actually meant no more politics. You've had enough of politics now. You're bored of watching it. It's all these people far away shouting on the television screen, vote for us and we'll get rid of it. And I think that's the opposite. I think because that plays into people's cynicism, I think there's, there's almost an opposite kind of turn of that, which is, well, is there a way that instead of saying to people, we can make politics go away because you don't like the way it's done, we could do it differently and you could be more included. Okay. Have you got time for one more question? Yeah, go on. Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. This is the, this, you, you, you could, you, yeah, answer this as, as, as lengthy as you want. Um, did you see uh, last year's uh, report in Al Jazeera? This was mind blowing. That um, this guy, um, Andy Kawaja, um, basically suggested that um, there was potentially tens, maybe hundreds of millions of pounds pouring into American politics from Saudi Arabia through small dollar donations that don't um, get checked by the, um, what do you call it? The, it's not the FDA. The, Whoever the whoever the the watchdog is in America for political donations, and basically he suggested that uh, Saudi Arabia was funneling like hundreds of millions of pounds potentially into um, American politics through like small donations. It's meant to be like grassroots, and it's an example of of, of astroturfing. Like, I, do you think that it's that's like a okay? Dismiss the idea that that's definitely happening or might be happening or. Like, do you think it's there's a potential for for that kind of thing to then take over any any attempt to even just like reduce the amount of donations in politics? Do you see that as a, as as like a conflict to it because of so you know they people had to try and take over the the means of or the means of information and production for it with think tanks, and then they just set up a whole bunch of of small tiny little think tanks to slowly push their message. Do you think that we're at risk of the same thing happening if we simply just reduce the amount of donations that are allowed to happen in, in British politics? I think there is. I know what you mean. I think there is There is a kind of, you know, that we actually saw that in Britain, I think, with the Brexit Party. I write about the Brexit Party quite a lot on my book. Yeah, I mean, they got a whole bunch of small dollar donations. Yeah, they got a lot of donations. <laughs> <laughs> it so happens. Look, wow, we've got all these, these little donations. It's just, you know. It's not up to us to kind of look at how they come in, you know. And so they did show, I think, that there is this potential. I, 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 Damien Collins, a Conservative MP, has some kind of harsh words and that to say in the book. And I think, you know, there is, we've already seen, I think, the potential to do that in Britain too. And that's why I think the internet has this, you know, it's this real difficulty that we have with flattening, um, with the flattening kind of access and the way 
that's changed the way even things like political donations work. And the system just hasn't, whether it's Britain or America, I'm much more familiar with Britain's system. Britain's system is basically an analog system operation in digital age. So what we're not seeing is any attempt to keep pace with these changes. So it becomes, so if I want to give money online, it's really, really easy. I'm pretty much, you know, it's really easy to be untransparent, but it's really easy to get multiple months of money. But if I do it in person, it's actually really difficult. In the same way as that, if I get an advert through my door from a potential MP, you know, during a general election, I'll have to have details about who they are and who paid for it. But if they want to advertise me on Facebook, they don't have to do anything. And so that's, I think that's all of a piece with this complete failure to try and reform our politics with digital age. But there's a kind of wider point too, which is that as in America, Britain is the same. Actually, most countries are the same. Most, a lot of countries have electoral laws are around stopping foreign influence in politics. It's one of the kind of main goals of election law. How do you do that in a digital age? How do you do that in a way, in a, in a kind of borderless internet world? And I think that's something that almost most countries have just decided to sidestep and not engage with. And I think that's a huge problem. And I think it does, again, push to that kind of conclusion. I start to come to my book that's very unpopular, which is increasing the role of the state in, in the kind of funding of political parties. Um, I, it's a difficult thing to do. You know, it's, there's a huge conversation about how you do it. But as long as private money drives politics, there will, al- there will always be, I think, the, the possibility for this, whether it's simple conflict of interest from people who give money, just normal people, you know, kind of property developers, the kind of people who give money to the Conservative Party, wanting things done because that's what their interests are. Or in this state, in the potential case of, say, Saudi Arabian American politics, it's a foreign state trying to influence politics. That will, I think, continue as long as there's such a heavy reliance on private money. Okay, right. I, I know you, you probably have a lot of interviews to do, so I will let you get on. But but this was an, an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks so much for finding the time. Um, I wish we had a little a little more time, but uh, there we go. I really enjoyed it. It was really good. Really, really good to have the chat. Thanks a million for it. Yeah, not a problem. Um, you know, maybe once you're you're less busy, at some point we can we can uh, continue. Yeah, this. I'd be happy to pick it up again. Yeah. When and yeah, yeah, I'd be delighted. It'll be. I look. Let me know about your book. I'd be delighted. I look forward to reading. Yeah, it's coming out in February. Um, Excellent. So yeah, look out for it. You can pre-order on Amazon. All who are listening. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you have to wait a while. But uh, yeah, I'll let go. Thanks very much, Peter. It was an absolute pleasure. Sure, thank you. Oh shit. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.